You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. We have Dave Greif. Now, when you go on LinkedIn, you look at Dave's profile, this guy has done literally everything from co-founding a company, working for a very large company such as Oracle. He's got three exits to his name across private equity, venture capital. Dave, you've pretty much done it all. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Cal. I really appreciate the time. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us what you're doing right now? Yeah. So right now I am CRO of a tech platform that's focused on the high school and K through 12 space. So we provide ticketing to high schools and middle schools. And then we also provide a streaming service to high schools. So if you want to go to the game, we can provide the tickets. Or if you want to watch from home, we do the streaming. Gotcha. Absolutely. Now you guys, I know you guys have been growing for a while before Mm -hmm. that and were acquired by KKR and had an acquisition with a couple companies. So what's kind of ballpark size of the company? How many employees are you guys at right now? So right now we're a little under over 300 employees. That includes full-time and part-time, but about 200 full-time, 300 with the part-time. Gotcha. We've got some part-time folks on the service side. Great. Great. So we'll dive into some of that. To kind of kick everything off, How'd you get here? What brought you to where you're at today? Uh, that is a good question. If you go all the way back when I started, when I was just a wee lad out of school, I had two paths, either go down the consulting path, which a lot of my friends did, or go down the sales path. And I chose door number two. I don't know why, but ended up <laughs> becoming a, a salesperson, which turned out to be a pretty good decision in the long run. But you know, I started as a sales rep, slinging telecom equipment. Um, and from there, I kind of worked my way up and did a lot of different things like to get me to be a CRO uh, of a you know combined org of close to 200 million in revenue now. Yeah, that's incredible. So you could have went a consultant. So why not a consult? Why did you not go the consulting route? I was the social chairman of my fraternity when I was about to graduate. And I had to convince this other sorority to be our partner. And I just like, man, I'm really good at convincing someone <laughs> to do something. And so I convinced them to select us as their partner for homecoming. And so like the light just went off. They're like, I think I could be really good at selling and convincing. Of course, selling is a lot more than convincing people. Mm-hmm. But that was like the light bulb that went off. And I decided that would be a fun career and wanted to move to Atlanta after the Olympics. And I thought this would be a great city to live, at least for a few years. And I had a job offer to come to Atlanta. So that's where I went. went moved to Atlanta and became a sales rep. Why Atlanta? What was it that excited you about Atlanta and, and why you wanted to move there? Uh, just the overall, like crazy growth that I was experiencing. So like post the Olympics, a lot of people were moving here. It was really, it's a silly answer, but a lot of my friends were moving here. And then just the opportunity to go to a city that was just experiencing exponential growth. I thought that was made a lot of sense. And it's a young town, right? So I was a young person at the time. And I wanted to be in a place where there were lots of young professionals like myself. And so that really drew me to Atlanta and just, a, it's an easy city. And I figured at some point I'd probably have to travel for a job and living in Atlanta, you can get really anywhere in the world with one flight. So I think that probably nailed it for me. And the weather is great as well. That is so true. I, of course, am in Columbus, Ohio, right? We do not, I mean, Atlanta is unique in that it's got the biggest airport in the world, but yeah. in sales, it is a huge convenience to be yes. located close to a place like that. I think it doesn't get talked about enough, the difference between getting a direct flight oh. and having a layover 
in a sales role, like in my opinion, it actually does make a difference. How do you feel about that? A hundred percent. Because I can do a day trip versus having to spend two days or I can get in and out of a meeting. I don't think that happens as much anymore. We are going for one meeting, yeah. but before the pandemic, you could fly and I can be in New York for the morning and leave that afternoon really anywhere minus the West Coast. So I think that is huge. And when you're leading large teams like I've done in the past, like being able to get in and out of a city and get back home and go to the next place is really important. So I was probably, I don't know if I really thought about it that much when I was that young, but it definitely paid off as I was traveling really the world to, to make, you know, work with my different teams. Yep. It makes complete sense. And so started off as an individual contributor yep. as a sales rep. Were you selling to enterprise, SMB? What did that look uh, like? SMB. I was, um, so it's a funny story. So I was selling telecom equipment. I was literally knocking on doors in buildings and getting chased out of buildings. Like, <laughs> so whenever one of my sales reps complains about, I don't have enough leads. I'm like, dude, I, I had the yellow pages. That were my lead. That was my lead book. And then I would just knock on doors and like ask people what they were doing for their telecom. So like what phone systems they had or what long distance carrier they had. So it was hard, but fun. And I was pretty good at it. I don't know if it was the timing. It was right before the bubble. So maybe that helped. But I ended up being a pretty good little sales rep and knowing nothing. Like I knew nothing about sales minus yeah. selling my fraternity to uh, a sorority for homecoming. So. <laughs> I love that that was the spark that did it. That's yeah, fantastic. It's probably not a great answer. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> no, I yeah. love it. It's yeah. a truthful answer. So it's funny. I got into sales because my best friend went in to interview at Northwestern Mutual to be an insurance yeah. agent for their intern program. And they asked him for a referral. I was the only number that he had memorized. Um, awesome. And I had no internships lined up whatsoever. So, awesome. uh, so they're like, I, and I remember I picked it up. I was hung over when I pick it up. I probably sound terrible, yeah. but uh, I was hung over and I picked it up. And they're like, hey, this is Northwestern Mutual. I thought it was like one of my friends prank call me. I didn't even take it for real and uh, took it. And then sure enough, and that's what got me into it. So it is. It's one of those things that's like nobody. I don't have known very few people that are like, I just can't wait to graduate and get into sales. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. So when you're an individual contributor, was there anything in particular that whether that was a habit or something that you were doing that led to that success? Uh, You know, my first sales manager was really good. So like I got really lucky to have a good sales manager and coach. And it was all about preparation. Like know your client before mm-hmm. you walk in the door. Not when you're cold calling, of course, because when you're just knocking on doors in the big building, like you whoever opens a door, that's a good thing. <laughs> it was just not being afraid to lose. I know that sounds kind of simple, but like he said, like just put 10 pennies in your pocket. And I tell this story to this day, and I think it goes over everybody's head, but it's fine. But like 10 pennies in your left pocket, when you get to the ninth penny in your right pocket, you're going to close the deal. And so like every time you get to the nine no's, essentially, you'll get to the one yes. And I I think that just helped me kind of like put it all in perspective. It's like, it's okay to lose. And it's a lot of just sheer will. Again, it's you, you learn to be a better salesperson and start reading books and all that sort of stuff. But like, I think it was like just in the beginning, like just work as hard as you can and thinks and work smart at the same time. But like, again, like if I was not having a great day and have a lot of meetings or whatever, pick up the yellow pages and just start banging out phone calls. And I did that enough that I was like, I said, I was pretty successful. It's one of those things I have found this. I don't know if you've seen this, but I have found that at every single stop, 
that 1031, right? You talk with 10 people, three will give you the time of day, one yeah. will become a client. It's ridiculous how much that still yeah. adds up. Now, of course, right, large enterprise is different and, and micro SMB or B2C is different, but as a whole, that ratio is really interesting. I I love that. I love the 10 pennies because correct me if I'm wrong, but that's essentially it's what are these tasks that are going to move the needle the absolute most and how do we make that's sure right. that we're holding ourselves accountable to it? Yeah. And that's when you're a young rep learning how to sell, like I think you have to have like an easy target that you can focus on every day. Mm -hmm. Actually, I tell the youngsters, I don't spend as much time as I'd love to with young sales reps because I have sales managers and all that. But like, like just imagine you're at a bar and you're going up to 10 different ladies or men or whatever you're, you know, you're doing. And like by the 10th one, you might have someone's can give your phone numbers. Like if you treat it like that, it's a game and you gamify your own world. It kind of works. No, I agree. Whatever it is, whatever kind of goals I think that you need to lay out there, because that's one of the things. It's hard, right? Let me tell you, I've maybe seen very few people that are just, I can't wait to cold call. I can't wait to go <laughs> right. knock on doors today, right? Yeah. It's one of the best quotes that I ever heard was, successful people like doing the same things or dislike doing the same things that unsuccessful people do, but they do it anyway. And they do it over yeah, and right. over and over again. So you were a good sales rep. Yes. Where did it happen along your career where you made that leap into sales leadership? Well, after I did that, I moved up pretty quickly and was running the state of Georgia for that company, for that telecom company as a sales manager. And I was like 24 years old or whatever. So like that was my first time managing older people than me, right? So I thought that was a big lift and learning how to manage people and mm -hmm. me not doing all the selling. So I did that for about a year or so and then had an opportunity my life is like a series of paths and I picked a lot of good ones and some not so good ones, but I had an opportunity to join Sun as a sales rep. So this is pre when Oracle purchased them, which is kind of funny because it's full circle ended up at Oracle anyways, but Oracle or go start a company with some seed capital. And I figured since I can manage a sales team, I can certainly start a company. It's the same thing. Of course, I was way off <laughs> on that. But I thought I could do it. And I ended up saying, all right, I'm going to go start this company, which was a vaccination services company, which was about 10 years too early. Yeah. It would have been a great business, you know, a couple of years ago, but started a vaccination services company in a small little office. I knew absolutely nothing about vaccinations or healthcare, minus my dad was a doctor. That was as far as I went, but mm -hmm. I kind of treated it like a telecom company too which had some good things and some bad things, but like was able to build a little nice little company for nine years. So before we get there, because I want to dive into that a, a little bit more, I think a lot of the listeners will find that interesting. You mentioned a key point in particular, and this is one that I think a lot of people, a lot of new leaders struggle with, but starting to manage people that are older than you. Yeah. When you first started doing it, what were some of those concerns or fears when you first, I remember mine, for me, it was like, are they going to hmm. take me serious? Like, I'm 10 yeah. years younger than this person. What, what am I going to teach them? Yeah. What was it for you? What was that like? That was the hardest thing for me is like, how am I going to teach these guys who've been selling for, I don't know, five more years than I am, 10 yeah. more years than I have? And do they think I just got moved into this role? Like I had that, I forget what they call it now, or you're, you feel like you're not the right person for the job. There's Imposter some syndrome? Term. There you go. But we didn't, nobody um, so talked was, about I, that before. When I was first getting into this, that was not talked about. Yeah. I mean, I that, thought I was, I literally just like, I'm not qualified to do this. <laughs> every day I woke up, I'm like, crap. It just made me work harder and learn more and mm -hmm. like read books. Cause I mean, back then I'm going to date myself. There wasn't like podcasts to listen to. Right. Sure. So like there wasn't all these like 
outside sources where you can go to get information. So like I, I just made myself read as many terrible management books as I could so that I would at least provide in my mind some value to them. But then when you peel it back, like you're like, all right, they did pick me because I was doing really well, but not all good salespeople are good managers. That is a hundred percent accurate. Yep. So I think that was part of it, but just like teaching myself how to be a good manager and how to help them be more successful. And one lesson I picked up is like my only job. And I've said this to lots of people is like to increase their W2, right? And so like I focused on like, how do I get them more leads and all that sort of stuff. Yep. So that worked. I mean, it was definitely hard. I'm sure there were some reps who couldn't stand me because I was this young snot-nosed kid running a team, but <laughs> it is what it is, right? So I don't know where those people are in their career now, but it's hard. It's really hard. And that happened to me a couple of stages along yep. the way, even at Oracle. No question. I've found very similar because, it, again, it's one of those things that doesn't really go away, right? Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, that first time managing somebody that's older than you, and then you realize, I, I always found, it was like, okay, people are people. doesn't matter. And that's why diversity, actually, I think it helps so much because you get different thoughts, different opinions, different things like that. But I didn't understand that maybe as much earlier in my career. Yeah. So you went on co-founded a company. Mm -hmm. What drove you to do that? What was going through your mind at that time? Whew. I don't know. I wanted to do something on my own because I had some, my family has a several entrepreneurs and I figured like that's the quickest way. I mean, again, I was young to go make a lot of money yeah. and go live on the beach the rest of my life. So that's <laughs> probably not a good reason to do it. I didn't have some mission to go vaccinate the world like that. So usually like someone starts a company, they're in some mission. I did not have yeah, that. Yeah. I was thinking more of financially, which is probably not the greatest idea in the world, but at least I'm honest. That's the way it was though. Yeah. That's what I was. Coming out of college, I was just like, okay, I want to go make as much money as possible. Yeah. It it wasn't until years later that I did, you know, started to make decisions for fulfillment, energy, things like that. Yeah. And you realize a lot of times the money does tend to follow depending on the yes. career. But yep. you got in here and uh had his family of entrepreneurs um mm -hmm. and you're like okay if i want to if i want to relax at some time in my life That's i need right. to get after it right now yeah i had a dream of retiring by 40. obviously that didn't happen but yeah that was my dream so like i and then go into politics randomly so neither of those happened but yeah i mean i saw a need a little bit of a need and i once i got into the business i knew that i could outsell the local guys, right? So make mm -hmm. this a national scale company. And so we did, we had, I mean, it's crazy to think about it now, but of the fortune 50, I think I had 20 of them were my clients where I was going That's out incredible. and providing. Yeah, it was nuts. I mean, it was just, it was sheer will again and using some of the sales tactics I picked up along the way. And then, then I had to build the infrastructure. So like that part is not natural to me is building the operational piece. Mm -hmm. So I had to like really learn that piece. But we were, you know, we were pretty darn successful. Ended up learning how to delegate too, which has helped me along the way. So if you don't mind, I want to, I want to reverse in for a couple of those things. So another transition yeah. that it was, was you were going from SMB to enterprise. How was that change? I didn't really, I, I think looking back, there's a massive difference, but in my mind, I was, it was a one to one. I was calling like the HR person, right? Or the head of HR or the yeah, head yeah. of health and safety. So, like, for me, it wasn't that, you know, until you've asked that question, I never really thought about that transition there. Yeah. yeah. I obviously, no, there's a massive difference now because I'm probably smarter. So, maybe it's what I didn't know helped me is that I treated it more like, hey, I'm going to go 
meet some receptionist and then get her to have me talk to the office manager so I can go sell some telecom equipment. And that's kind of how I use this. I'm like, all right, I'm going to call every single HR person and all these big companies and you can find them. It wasn't that hard to find them and convince them to outsource their vaccinations and healthcare or health fairs to us. And so it's probably good that I was young and didn't know the difference really. Cause I don't think in my mind, I didn't knew I had any idea what enterprise or small business was. It was just sales. Yep. Now I'm jaded and I hundred percent know the difference. So like there is an absolute difference in how you sell and using medic and medpick and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, that's, that's a great question. I just did it. So I find that super interesting. And here's why, even as we're talking about this now, I think about it because I did something very similar and I think about it and I didn't think about it any different. I didn't think about going into it with all of this different structure and I'm a process person, right? So I like that structure, yeah. but I do sometimes think, especially in sales, especially as you're, you're scaling that sometimes we try to over-engineer it. And a lot of times it's just, okay, let's go, especially when you're doing a new market or something like that. Let's go, let's figure it out, see how it is. And it sounds like that was pretty similar to the approach that you took. And as a result, you just said you had massive success when you get yeah. 20, would you say 20 out of fortune 50? Like that's pretty insane. It was crazy. Yeah. Okay. So you, you're at this startup and you were there for almost eight years, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. We ended up going out and raising some capital, which was my first foray into the world of VC and someone else's money. I mean, we had some IC capital for my family, but yeah, we went out and did the tour and ended up raising some capital from a VC firm here in Atlanta. And that was a whole different world also. Like now you have someone else asking questions, which was different for me because before it was just me asking my own questions in my head. Right. But now I had some really smart people asking questions about why did you do this? Or did you think you should go faster here or slower here? So like that was actually really interesting. It was a good experience. It makes sense. I know that's a hard transition for a lot of people. And some people will try it and go back to going to bootstrapped because they find that they don't enjoy it that much. And I think one of the interesting things about your career is you've got these different perspectives because you've done it all, whether it's private equity, VC, bootstrapped, What were some of those early learnings that you found as you started to both raise capital Mm -hmm. and then after raising capital working now that you have investors that have a vested interest as well? Know the story and be able to tell the story. It took me a little while to get this right, but like to be able to tell the story with numbers because at the end of the day, like a professional investor, they hear the story, but they're really, really focused on the numbers, right? Because that's what they do. They're able to crunch through numbers and see things that you could never see. And so being able to efficiently tell the story, but also have the data or numbers behind it is critical. And I didn't know that in the beginning. And so it took a little while for us to hit our stride, but learning that is critical. And that's served me throughout my career, like less about the have the story short, quick, but be able to tell it with metrics and numbers, that's critical. Like if you can't do that, it's really hard to like move up the ladder, if you will. So like, that was great. I mean, I, I learned it on someone else's dime essentially. I think that is a big piece and I have actually never heard it described that way. Tell the story with the numbers. When you think about doing that, what's your process for doing that? It's a really good question. Metrics and numbers don't lie. Like, so like if you can look at what you're trying to do. And then like, for instance, if you want to show the TAM, like go get the data and show like, Hey, look, this is how many in that world, fortune 500 company, that's an easy number, but how many fortune 500 companies with multiple locations, which is like our sweet spot. And so being able to back everything you say with numbers 
Or if you're looking at your forecast, like, okay, here's why I'm going to hit my forecast. This is my pipeline. This is what I expect to close. Like, as long as I can show the story without me being in the room, maybe that's the better way to say it. It's like, if I can provide the numbers and say, if someone's not in the room, and they're looking at my data, like, okay, I get this. This makes sense. Because the story only lasts so long as in that world, they're talking like 100 people a day. So you might be a good salesperson, which I think I'm pretty decent at, but I can give them the numbers or the printout, right? And they still can tell, tell the same story. That then you know you've hit it right. So being able to just basically leave them the presentation with the metrics, data, and the charts, and all that good stuff, and if that tells the story the same way, and they can pass that and forward to the next person, then you've nailed it. That's excellent. If I've told this story well enough, I don't have to be the one to tell the story. They can look yeah, at the right. deck and they can see exactly how we derive this and yep. why we have confidence in being able yeah. to achieve this. Yeah, I mean, because they're probably talking to slick salespeople all day long, right? So right. it's more about the numbers. So like, as long as the numbers tell the same story, and then if you have them both hitting, that is like that is gold. So if you can tell the story and have your numbers back it, so that's that's a home run. That's excellent. I love that. I love that. So okay, so you're right here. You raised some money, and then I know you went to I believe Ebix after this. I did. What was that transition like between hard? Walk us to that. Yeah, I would say it was really difficult because you went from running your own company to working for somebody else, right? Yeah. Even though you kind of work for someone else in the world of VC, but it was time for me to go. I made some, like I said, I made some really good decisions and really some bad decisions. If I go back now, I would have taken that company and sold it like five times, but I just didn't know. I just was too young and didn't have enough experience. So maybe that's one of the pitfalls of starting companies so early in your career. But working for someone else and working for a company, I had 60 employees at the max with 1,500 employees was a massive difference. And I was, again, young. I was leading two teams and we did two acquisitions. I ended up having four different sales teams underneath me. That was definitely challenging too. Like I had never done an acquisition and I hadn't been in a company that would buy and then cut everything, right? So like that was totally different for me as well. So it was a tough learning experience, but we were pretty good. I mean, we had a successful team and I changed some things and trained the sales team up. And that was more of an enterprise type sale. So that was definitely, that's where I started really understanding like, holy crap, there is a massive difference between selling telecom solution to like the small business to selling, you know, a large solution. So like I quickly learned the difference. Again, I don't think there was a lot of podcasts there. So I was reading a lot of sales books and trying to yeah. train the team up. It was definitely challenging. It was hard in the beginning. So let's talk about the enterprise sale a little bit. What is it that you have found that really needs to be in place? Uh, let's say from a team perspective, because mm -hmm. it's harder to see those nuances if you got one person and that person's you, right? Going out and yeah. you're the lone salesperson for the company and, and getting these clients. But when you've got a team and some of that rigor and process around it, what are some of those things that you believe need to be there to be successful? I mean, well, first of all, it takes a full team. And so like, I'm firmly, I mean, believe it starts with content. You've got to have a content producing machine. And so wherever I go now, that's one of my first hires is go hire a badass content person who can write and build because that pulls through to all aspects from sales to marketing to CS to service at some point. So it's full on team sport, right? So like start with the content person obviously marketing, right? So I think of it as almost like the funnel, like that's how I go build my team and I got to have enough leads, if you will, to feed or MQLs and SQLs to feed my organization. Yep. 
So I always start there first. And because I know if I can build that and that's working, if I can get that engine to work, the rest will follow. So that's where I'm saying it's like fully a team sport. And my, the way I structure my team, like everybody knows what the revenue number is and we're all tied to that number. So from marketing to the content person, we're always talking about like, where do we have to go from a revenue growth perspective? And so if you could do that and you nail that, then that works really well. And then obviously you need a BDR SDR team that will help the sales reps like get in front of the right people because I don't want my sales reps spending all their day prospecting. I'd rather have them in front of qualified prospects, especially from an enterprise standpoint, because those deals are so long and sloggy that if you sit in there picking up the yellow pages all day long and they're not in front of enough customers, and that's not a good thing, right? They're too highly paid to be doing that. Yep. Then just having a structure around how you manage the opportunity. I know I'm kind of high leveling it a little bit, but I've always liked MedPick yeah, yeah. over Medic because I think the paper process is something that kills every sales rep. Big enterprise in particular. Yeah. And like, you know, working in a place like Oracle, you can't really miss forecasts. So you have to understand that process of like, how long is it really going to take to get through their entire internal process? So having MedPick and then obviously having a good CRM and all that sort of stuff to track it is important, but it really, really in my mind starts with content. And if you can get the content right, it goes all the way through. Let's zero in on that because I think this is something, I don't want to say unique, but I think this is something personally that doesn't get talked about enough when it comes to enterprise sales. Yeah. Walk us through, what's your problem? When you look at content from an enterprise sales, mm-hmm. what are you looking for? What does that process look like? What kinds of content are you building and how is that yeah. deployed? It's everything about the industry and surrounding industries so that I can use that. So it could be anything from a blog post to the website to just that the whole machine is using the same language and same vernacular, if you will, for all parts of the process. So like building the entire why you should work with us. Here are some interesting stories. So it's not always so super salesy. It's more about informative, right? Like I'm a big believer in like, inform the customer, educate the customer, and they shall come. But you've got to be salesy enough. It's a, it's a tricky thing to hit. Like there's definitely a fine like salesy enough to get their attention, but informative enough so that people think that you're a good source of information and they're going to reach out to you should they come. And especially in enterprise, you're not going to cold call someone like, oh yeah, I was thinking about spending $10 million tomorrow. <laughs> I, I, I knew there was something else I was working on. Like, shit, what was it? Right? So like that's different. So you have to like build that machine. So people are like, holy crap, these guys know what they're talking about. I'm going to call them when I get to that point. Right. And so without good content, none of that happens. Cause I've seen places where they don't invest in content and it's a shitload harder yeah. to, and that's a scientific term to go <laughs> and get those meetings. Right. Like it's all about that piece. Like it's an art and I could yeah. never be that person, but I know what I want. I can just tell them like, Hey, we need to go build this machine. Literally everything we do is derived off that content. Our CS material, our sales material, our going to a trade show or whatever, like all of it is all the same. Cause we want that same message to be clean and crisp. Yeah. I love that. I love that. All right. So you mentioned Oracle and you mentioned specifically, you don't miss forecasts at Oracle. Walk us through. What's that mean? Yeah. So when you go to Oracle, they are a machine. And like I, I tell the reps who are here to work for me, like at some point in their life, in their career, you got to go work for one of the big boys because I think you've learned so much around metrics and KPIs and how to forecast. And when I say forecast, so beginning every quarter, you say, okay, I'm going to go close $6 million, whatever the number is. 
and I'm going to forecast six of it. I'm going to put upside 3 million of it. And then there's the pipeline of a million, right? Whatever that forecast number is, come hell or high water, you better damn get that number. Yeah. Because that all rolls up to the unit and the unit rolls up to the GM of a massive unit and that rolls up into like headquarters, right? So like you have to be really, really good at taking your pipeline, understanding your pipeline, working with your reps and nailing your forecast. Like yeah. you just don't miss it. If you miss forecast, it's a bad day at Oracle and Oracle is very quarterly driven. So that whole process starts over every single quarter Yep, and you learn really quickly. I had a, a boss there who was the GM of a $2 billion unit where his thing was don't use adjectives when you're on the forecast calls, which is a really hard thing to do. I've tried doing it in places, but it's, it's a little What's that aggressive. mean? What's that mean? Do you mind walking us through that? I, yeah, this is a great deal. I feel really strongly about it. It's more about here's the next steps. This is the date this is happening. This yep. is the date this is happening. And this is the date. So take all the emotion out of being sold yourself and just give them the data. So kind of like full circle back to like when you're reporting to a VC is like be able to tell the story without any like story. You can tell why it's happening. But the underlying like baseline is it is happening on this date because we have a meeting here. They're going to budget approval on this date. They looked at these three competitors. The reason they chose us is this. So like understand your deals. And you learn that at Oracle. Like as a leader, and I was running the Americas for the insurance and healthcare unit, like you're portraying all these different deals. So you gotta know your deals. Mm-hmm. And so like not using adjectives is hard, but you you become pretty good at it. Now, that's excellent. It cuts right to it. And I've done it as a sales leader. I've done it as a sales rep. We'll put artificial importance on certain things, yeah. whether that's a KPI, a deal, whatever that may be. I actually love that as a rule. I've never heard that. I really like that. Yeah. So you're at Oracle for a few years. And then I know so you, and from there, this is when you went on this terror of exits. Yeah. You had multiple yeah. exits throughout that. Mm-hmm. The last three companies that you've been with have had significant acquisitions. Yeah. When you look at those, is there anything that you think, is there something there that's like, okay, this is what we did and we did this here, we did this here, we did this here? Yeah. Or is it each one was unique in its own regard? They all have some uniqueness to them, but they all... The first one was about rebuilding a sales team culture and structure. Okay. It was a flat organization, meaning flat growth. And we had to rebuild the way we were thinking about attacking the market and hiring different types of people. I didn't fall into the trap. I don't don't always hire someone who's been in that same space for a hundred years and has a Rolodex of like, 600 pages. I think that's total bullshit. Personally, yeah, I think you can hire and train people. They need to know the industry a little bit. So like restructuring that team and you can train them up on like the intricacies of artificial intelligence or machine learning or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. right, right. But like you need someone who's going to follow that process. Like, cause I know the process works and the process is again, starts with content, starts with like making X amount of calls and working with people and working with the SDRs and trusting the process upstream. So that was the first one. So that was more about restructuring. The second one, I was lucky. It was already a fast growth company. Yep. But what they needed was structure and procedure to take it to the next level. So yep. I love going into a place where I can build the infrastructure and change the way 
the team is operating. So like the structure of it and like putting in the procedures and the metrics and the KPI so that you know when you're doing the right thing. Because if you don't have all that, I'm not really sure how you manage a large team. If you don't have metrics that are, you can look at every day and say, oh crap, this is working. This isn't working. Looking at your leading and lagging indicators, like all that. So then on this last round, similar story as the, the second one, which was growing really fast, but didn't have a true marketing team, didn't have a CS team, didn't have an SDR, BDR team. Everybody was doing something. And that's kind of similar to fast growth. Like everybody had like their hands in the cookie jar. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work on my watch. Everyone's going to have a specific role. And that's what they're going to do. Because I don't know how you measure it otherwise. It works really well in early stage. But like as you start to hit hyperscale and hyper growth, you got to have everything like in a certain bucket so you can measure it so you know how I can affect change and make that better. If Otherwise, it's just like, it's too hard to do. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you correctly, to play that back, it's, we've got to have a process. You've almost taken a lot of these companies, you've had these situations where it's like, okay, we've got a really good thing going here. And now in order to get this to truly be set up for scale, we need to put some process and focus on the both the mm-hmm. sales process as well as focus in those different positions. Yeah, the CS process, the marketing, like it just everything has to be. And maybe that's just because the way my brain works, I need to have it in certain buckets so that I mm-hmm. can look at it. But I, I do believe like you're right. All three of those places was like, go build the structure and process and the rest shall follow. Like, I think if you get that right, along with the content, obviously, it's a lot, hell of a lot easier to impact the change and the revenue growth that you're looking for. Otherwise, it's just too hard. Like You can't grow your way into everybody doing everything. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. So we've touched on a number of things that worked, right? And which I think is excellent. We talked a lot about of what didn't work and then what would we have to change in order to get there? Two questions, starting with, if you could have a conversation with the Dave that just jumped into sales, what yeah. would you say to him? Don't do it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Find a good mentor. Yeah. And I tell, because I have, we've got some younger folks that work for me here. I like constantly learn. And I made them all take uh, pavilion sales training. They're all doing the yeah, pavilion that's sales awesome. training right now. Yeah, it's yeah. super awesome. Because even if it doesn't totally apply to our business, I think like the end of the day, it's going to help them when they move on. I'm not stupid. Like sales reps are going to turn, leave every three, four years, right? Whatever. Too. And I want them to like, go get a job at Oracle, go get a job at Microsoft or Google. You got to do that if you want to be good. So learn, just be willing to read, listen. I mean, it's so much easier now than it was when I was like, I had to go read really, really crappy books. <laughs> and you know if they were good or bad they didn't have like good reads or any of that stuff right yeah, so yeah. like i think that's number one is like make yourself better every day because sales I mean, people like sales oh, it's for like the social kids in college it's actually yeah it's, that's kind of bullshit like sales I agree is with a, that. actually a science right and so sales is just at the end of the day it's a big numbers game but you got to be really good at telling the story around the numbers but yeah. like you have to always improve so that would be number one like work your ass off to improve that's excellent. So, you know what? That kind of sums it all up, to be honest with you. When I look at some of the things that you talked about today that I think are great things to take away, one, that content piece, that one is something, again, I nobody, I rarely see it get talked about. You hear about ABM, right? ABM takes yeah. kind of the buzz, and it's essentially plugging that content into an ABM process. Yeah. 
which I know you're a big believer in because we're just working together in the past, yep. building that structure. But I tell you what, the one that I think that I would tell you myself personally probably sticks with me more than anything is how can we tell the story with numbers so well that if we're not in the room, it's telling the same story as if we were, because that is true. Yeah. A lot of times, sometimes, and especially with board meetings, right? Even, um, you know, the rest of the exec team may not be in that meeting with the board, may just be Correct. the CEO and being able to prepare that CEO for that is a big deal or a CEO doing a lead behind and making sure that yours is picked. I think that was an excellent one um, as a great takeaway. It also applies to the selling too, right? Like mm-hmm. that's going to get forwarded to a hundred people on an enterprise deal. Maybe not a hundred, but 10 people. Well, so it, like, I mean, a lot. Good. So like, it still applies. Like the numbers, numbers don't lie, right? So. Yeah, that's excellent. I love it. Dave, thank you for, for hopping on. Thank you, Callan. This was a ton of fun. Yeah. I knew this was going to be a good one. So I'm excited for it. Good. Well, I appreciate it. How can people find you? How can people follow you? Where do they find you at? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I try to respond even to all the salespeople that hit me up like a hundred times a day on there. I try to respond to all of them because I do appreciate the art of selling. So I do respond to LinkedIn is probably the best way. And then my email is uh, david.greiff at playonsports.com. That's excellent. So happy to respond to anything. I love it. Dave, thank you for coming on. This was a lot of fun. I can't wait to get this one out there. Cool. It was great talking with you. Thank you, Callan. 